So Genesis chapter 10, it's on page 11 of the church Bibles. Page 11, Genesis 10. Now, before I read this, let me just say, this chapter is of evidence that we as a church think that all of the Bible is God's word. We're going to read a chapter which basically, as I read it, you will see is just a list of names. And we are utterly convinced that the Bible is no ordinary book. We're convinced that the Bible was written by human authors, but inspired by the Spirit of God. And therefore, everything that's written in the Bible is for us. Holy Spirit inspired, written down by God's Spirit for us. And therefore, we think that every section of the Bible, every bit of the Bible needs to be studied and understood. So when we're working through a book like Genesis, we don't skip the list of names. We think about it. And I've spent a lot of time this week thinking about this list. I'm trying to think, why is it here? What's it for? What's it to teach us? And I believe God has some really exciting things to show us this afternoon. So let's uh, pray, and then we're going to read this list of names, and you'll be glad that you're not doing the reading. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for this Holy Spirit-inspired word. Oh, Father, we long that this list of names would not be dead words on a page, but would come with the living power of the Holy Spirit that you would make this word live to us and that we'd see you as you truly are in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here we go. Genesis 10, verse 1. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiraz. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togomar. The sons of Javan, Ilishar, Tarshish, the Kittites, and the Rodanites. From these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Sibar, Havilah, Sabtar, Rama, and Sabtika. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalna in Shinar. From there he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kalar, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kalnar, which is the great city. Egypt was the father of the Luddites, Anamites, Lehabites, Naphtathites, Pathrazites, Kashalites, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarites. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Gergesites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zemorites, and Hamathites. Got it? Later, the Canaanite clans scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon towards Gerar, father's Gaza, then towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Admar, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. Sons were also born to Shem, whose elder brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Afaxad, Lud, and Haram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Githa, and Meshech. Afaxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Joktan was the father of Almodad, Shelpeh, uh, Hazarmaveth, Jerar, Hadaram, Uzal, 
Dikla, Obal, Abmiel, Sheba, Ofer, Havilah, and Jobab. Jo- jo- <laughs> nearly, nearly there. All these sons of Joktan. The region where they lived stretched from Misha towards Sifa in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the entire earth after the flood. Yes. Who's excited about this? Who's looking forward? Who's looking forward to studying this bit of God's word? There are some seriously good things here, and we're going to work hard and learn together um, and try and understand what's going on. But let me start by asking this. Have you ever written a song? H- hands up, who's ever written a song? Anyone ever written a song? Be honest. Yes, a few of you. Great. A few of you have written songs. I haven't ever really written a song. But it, the songwriting process, you listen to some of the stuff that's in the charts at the moment. It doesn't seem that difficult, right? You, you come up with a lyric, and that's basically it. And then I got thinking, that's actually quite true about a lot of Christian songs as well. So you can imagine the bloke who sat there, or perhaps it was a woman, whoever it was, the person who sat down and came up with the line, I've got a great line, I've got a great first line of a song. He's got the whole world in his hands. That's a strong first line. Right, second line. What should we go for in the second line? I know it. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's so good, we'll just do it again. Now, we need a third line. He's got the whole world in his hands. Just one line to finish it off. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's a cracker. It's an absolute hit. Then we could just write endless verses. He's got everybody in his hands. He's got the mums and the dads. He's got everybody in his hands. And it's kind of funny when you sit down and think about how that song ended up. If you've never heard of that song, welcome. Well, I mean, well done. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's a, it's a classic uh, Sunday school song. But actually, it is a truth worth repeating four times. What, I'm going to sh- what we're going to see today from uh, Genesis 10 is that he's got the whole world in his hands. Everything. Every single nation. Everything is in God's hands. And this afternoon, that is going to be for us a massive comfort and a huge challenge about how we view this world. Just to put it another way, um, have a look at these words um, from the end of the Bible, from Revelation chapter 7. This is where all of human history is heading. A man called John saw a vision, and this is what he saw. This is what he saw in the future. This is what God has planned. John says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Just stop and think, a vast multitude, the biggest crowd you've ever imagined, and it's bigger. Millions and billions of people, and they're from every nation. No one's missing. He's got the whole world in his hands. Every nation belongs to this king. And they're all standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. That is Jesus. The whole of human history is heading to people from every nation standing before Jesus. And I think that Genesis 10 is in the Bible to show us where that all starts. Genesis 10 is to show us that when he means every nation, he means every nation. It's to blow our minds and to expand our horizons about just 
how big God's plan is. Look, you've probably got some plans for your life. And you may even be interested in trying to get God involved in your plans. God, I've got this great plan. I wonder if you'd help me. Because that is a completely wrong way to think about God. Can I very humbly say that God is not particularly interested in helping you fulfill your plans. What he's really interested in is you finding your place in his plans. And you discovering what you're really created for. You were created for this. And this plan of God is so vast. It's bigger than any plan that any human being has ever dreamt up. And this is where human history is heading. And we're going to now go into Genesis 10 to really feel the weight. This verse is going to kind of keep coming back up. And we're going to try and feel the weight of what it is ahead as every nation stands before the throne to worship. So let's get Genesis 10 in front of us. And Noah, of kind of ark and flood fame, uh, he's come out of the ark and he has three sons. And we're going to trace those three lines. There's Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But they're in a funny order. Japheth, then Ham, then Shem. Why is the, what, what's, what's going on with the order? Well, I think it's because each of these three represents something about the nations of the world that we need to understand. So let's start with the Japhethites. <laughs> the interesting thing about the Japhethites is that when you search for their name in the rest of the Bible, these nations, they hardly come up at all. They're hardly mentioned. And this is easy to do now. It would have been difficult to read the whole Bible and check that, but it's dead easy now. You just do it on a computer online. You just type, I, I typed in each of these nations to see where else in the Bible they're mentioned. Hardly at all. There's a few mentions, but hardly at all. Because what we have in the Japhethites is uh, what I want to call the distant nations. These are the nations who spread out, and they're so far away that they're sort of out of mind. The people who first read the Bible, the Israelites, God's people, as they read this list, they'd have gone, who are they? Never heard of them. Haven't heard of any of them. Because these are the guys who just kind of spread off and they've disappeared. No one's heard from them again. Now, let me be clear. Because they're descended from Noah, they carry sin in their hearts. We've seen that over and over again, that the sin of Adam has been passed down. They are sinners. They are against God. But they spread out. It's not that they're sort of neutral, but they've spread out away from God. They're worshipping other gods, and they just don't feature again in the Bible story. This is it. This is their one little moment of fame. They're mentioned again in 1 Chronicles, because this is quoted in 1 Chronicles again. So they do get repeated again. But apart from that, they're just unheard of. It's like saying you came from Basingstoke or something. I mean, I don't know if you come from Basingstoke. Basingstoke, anyone come? Sorry. They're, 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 it doesn't matter. Never heard of them. In fact, look, this is interesting. One of the names that's mentioned, one of the names that's mentioned in this list does feature in the Bible. And that is in verse 4. One of those names does feature again in the Bible. And that is Tarshish. So what? What's Tarshish? Where does that feature in the Bible? Don't worry if you don't know, but some of you might know. That's the place where Jonah tried to run away to. 
When God said, go that way, Jonah said, no, I'm going to Tarshish. Why Tarshish? Because it's a distant nation. That's the point. They stand. This list stands for the nations that are at a distance, far away. Those who don't know God. That's the point. By nature, the more distant somewhere is, the harder we find it to care, right? Things that happen right on our doorstep matter a lot to us, but the further and further away they get, the less and less we care. God says, you know the distant nations? I care about them. I've got a plan for the distant nations. Because remember, he's got the whole world in his hands. They're not out of sight and out of mind. They're not irrelevant. God knows them by name. He writes down their names, and so he spells out his plan. Here's God's plan for the distant nations. You want to see it? This is what God's doing. How's he going to get from here to every tribe and nation standing in front of Jesus, worshipping Jesus? How's he going to get there? He's going to whistle. Have a look at this verse um, from Isaiah chapter 5. This is what God says he's going to do. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. What is God's plan for the distant nations? It is to raise up a banner, to let out a heart-piercing whistle, and for the nations to come flocking to Jesus. Isn't that cool? They may be distant to us. They may be irrelevant. They may be far away, maybe unheard of. But God says, I haven't forgotten them. They're part of my plan. They're part of my desire. And I want them to be in front of Jesus, worshipping Jesus. So I'll whistle for them. And when Jesus came, in John chapter 12, Jesus said, When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. When the banner is lifted up, when the whistle is sounded, when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, suddenly the nations come to him. He is the one who calls the nations together. God is so passionately concerned for the distant nations. And can I say my guess is that as we sit here in this room, nearly all of us are descendants of Japheth. Nearly all of us are those from the distant lands. Do you see at the very end of what we're told in um, chapter 10 about Japheth? When they get to the sea, what do they do? They get in boats, make boats and go further. These are the distant people. Let's get a boat. Let's make, they cross the seas, they cross the seas, they cross the seas, even to this fair island. And here is the staggering thing. We're here today and we worship Jesus Because God is passionately committed for the distant nations. And Jesus has been lifted up. And we have heard the heart-piercing whistle of Jesus. And we've said yes. And have turned to him. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came so that all the nations might know the God who made them. That means that no one is too far from God. No one is beyond his reach. You may be sitting here thinking, I don't think God could ever reach me. Yes, he can. No one is beyond him. No one is too far. 
And the reason it's Jesus who gathers the nations together is because it's only Jesus who can deal with the sin problem that's in the heart of the distant nations. Jesus came to die on a cross to pay for sin for the distant nations so they could be gathered back to God. So here's the challenge, right? Let's just apply this. So what if God cares for distant nations? Well, let me just challenge what I think we're very have a tendency towards, which is that we tend towards a drawbridge mentality. We can become very obsessed with our little patch and our little place. And if I'm a castle, then I just want to pull up the drawbridge once everything's safe. Once everyone I love is inside, I pull up the drawbridge. I don't care about everybody else out there. Up goes the drawbridge. I've got everyone. Is everyone here? Is everyone here? Is everyone here? No, I'm missing one. Okay. Yes, okay. I've got everyone. Now we're safe. We are small-minded and have a small vision of what God is doing. And this world is a big place. The people are spread out across the whole earth. And if God is the God of the distant nations, then we have to let him push our drawbridge down. It is a disaster if Globe Church becomes a church with the drawbridge up, where we go, well, we're having a nice time, and let's have a happy time in London. To quote, um, <laughs> oh, that's a rubbish quote. I was going to say, uh, the, um, do they know it's Christmas? There's a world outside our window, but it's a terrible, doesn't matter, forget it. doesn't help. But there is, there's a world outside our window, and it's a world of dread and fear. Um, That means we must be a church who celebrate diversity, who love diversity, who love one another, who celebrate difference, who celebrate the distance that we've come from, who think that's a good thing. We must be a church who love people who are from different places. As you look at culture, I think there's an increasing trend towards nationalism. In our country, but across lots of cultures. It's summed up in Trump's inauguration speech, I don't want to pick on President Trump just because, um, but it's, it's an obvious example of it. When he stood at his inauguration speech and said, from now on, it's going to be America first. That's drawbridge mentality, right? We sort ourselves out. It starts at home. We've got enough problems of our own. We can't fix the problems of the world. We can't think about the world. And once we're okay, perhaps we'll have a look and see if there's anything we can do. It w- that just will not do. We have a God who loves the nations. So how can you let the drawbridge down and engage with the nations? What will that look like in practice? Some of you sitting here this afternoon, you go, actually, I'm completely disengaged with this world. I'm disengaged with the the kind of the nations completely. Well, let me ask you, I challenge you this afternoon, ask God, God, please, will you push the drawbridge down? Give me a bigger perspective. Help me to see the nations. Help me to care about the nations. Begin to pray. If you're disengaged, begin to pray. When you choose to go on holiday, think about where you go on holiday. Don't simply go on holiday to a place that's going to be easy and happy and relaxing and whatever. Go to a place where you could experience the nations. I'm not saying don't go to nice. There's plenty of nice places. But supposing we decided to use our holidays to go and visit people who are serving God overseas. You could go and have a really happy holiday somewhere. But we think, we think, how could I do that? How could I get to know the nations? How could I 
get more excited, get more interested in it. Some of you, perhaps a bit further along, you are fairly interested, but why don't you ask God to begin to push your drawbridge down more? Give me a greater love. Not just an interest, but a love for the nations. Who is it in your workplace? Who is it in your, you know, your university that is from a different place that you could get to know? You could show love to. You could spend time with to enjoy their c- culture, to get to know their culture. Say, hey, look, um, I know that you're from, I don't know, I know you're uh, Japanese. Do you know any good Japanese restaurants? Could you, I'd love to go out for a Japanese meal with you. Would you. Could we do that? Do you see how you're beginning to show love to the nations? To break walls down rather than build them up. There's probably people right now that you could think about. Right now. Such I could do that. That's not difficult. Be someone who loves the nations. And there'll be some people here who actually God is calling you to go to the nations. And some of you already feel that stirring inside you. You already feel a stirring. Say, I, I think one day perhaps God might call me overseas to the nations. And if that's you, I want to say, don't ignore that. Pursue that. Don't keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. Pursue it. Explore it. Not everyone will go to the nations. Some of us will stay in order to send people to the nations. We need senders and we need goers. But we all need to be involved in this great plan to reach the nations. So whatever it is, please, God, please, would you stir within us a passion for the nations? We need to move on because that was only the Japhethites. Let's find out about the Hamites. Now, when you get to the Hamites, the tone suddenly changes. Now you go from, don't know them, don't know them, don't know them. I do know them, and I do know them. Because all of the list of the Hamites suddenly become much closer to home. We're moving out from the distance inwards. We're moving now to what um, I want to call um, the nations, the enemy nations. Now, remember, last time we saw that Noah um, has spoken God's curse on the descendants of Ham. That was back uh, last time. Ham, if you remember, didn't cover his father's nakedness. He exposed his father. He he treated his father wrongly, and and he lived under God's curse. And from them, just look, from verse 6, there's Cush. We'll find out about Cush in a second. Egypt. Oh, yes, we know Egypt. The first readers of this... Egypt, yeah, that's where we were enslaved. The powerful nation that held us as slaves and cruelly treated us and enforced us. Put, don't know much about them. Canaan, that's the land that they're standing on the edge of, about to enter as they read this for the first time. Full of the Canaanites who sacrificed their children to idols. And so it goes on and on. In this list, you get Assyria, The nation that hundreds of years later would rise up to be the great superpower of the day who would sweep in and threaten God's people. Then there's Babylon. They're all here. It's like a who's who of all the enemies in the Bible. Babylon, Nineveh, then all the ites. You know, the Hittites, Amorites, Jebusites, Hivites, anything ites. It's just like these are are all the people who were opposed to God. God. They knew all of these. These are not distant and unfamiliar. These are the nations that 
will cause great harm and suffering to God's people in the generations that follow. And then we get focused in on one character in particular, Nimrod. So have a look at verse 8. And there's kind of a, it's a slightly rejoice as a preacher. You go, oh, there's a little bit of a story. There's actually a person. This is good. In this list of names, let's zoom in on him. And then you discover Nimrod's not straightforward because it's quite difficult to, ah, raises some questions. Is he a goodie or a baddie? Nimrod. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's why it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Goody or baddie? Difficult to say, isn't it, really, in some ways? Until you look at what he did, right? Then I think it becomes slightly clearer. In verse 10, we're told the first century of his kingdom was Babylon. <laughs> okay, that's not a great start, Right? Nimrod is the founder of Babylon, who will become the great enemy of God's people through the Bible. And then, he, then we're told about Shinar. That's when in the next chapter they're going to build a great Tower of Babel. It's almost certain that Nimrod was involved in the building of the Tower of Babel. That's next week, though. And then he went off to found Assyria and Nineveh. <laughs> he did a lot of founding of cities that would end up being enemies. Added to that, Nimrod, the name means rebel. So I think we can be pretty confident that Nimrod is a bad guy, a mighty warrior. I think we're supposed to see him as a hunter of men, a tyrannical ruler, a power-hungry dictator, ruthless, And he kind of stands as a picture of all those who want to make a name for themselves. But you might say to me, but why are we twice told that he was a hunter before the Lord? That sounds nice. Who wouldn't want to be a hunter before the Lord? Well, yes, although I think because of the negative surrounding of it, we're supposed to read that before the Lord, not as a positive thing, but as a negative. By which I mean... It has the sense of defiance. So like, like if I want to be defiant, I might, and you know, Southampton Football Club beat your team, I might go, in your face, like that. <laughs> I, I would very rarely do that. I'd like it to be known. That's, that's not a very natural. Although it felt quite good. Um, that sort of defiant, in your face. I think the picture is here of Nimrod standing before the Lord and being a mighty hunter before the Lord. Shaking his fist in God's face. Open and blatant rebellion against God. But it also reminds us that God sees it. God knows Nimrod. Because remember, he's got the whole world in his hands. He sees Nimrod. He sees the opposition. And just like every single power-hungry king who would come after him, who would take their stand against God, they're all in his hands. They're all in his hands. They're all in his view. They all live under his curse. And all of God's enemies will be punished rightly by God for their defiance. So when you're faced by an enemy, Israel, as they first read this, whether it be Nimrod, Egypt, Babylon, Nineveh, Assyria, whether it be any of those, when you're faced by an enemy, don't fear. He's got all of our enemies in his hands. That wasn't the verse I remember singing. But it's just as true. 
But whoa, whoa, hang on a second. Because we've now got a problem. Well, you may not have a problem, but if you were kind of thinking carefully, you might see a problem. What did Revelation 7 say? Revelation 7 that we started with said that there will be a day when every nation, people from every nation, will stand and worship Jesus. Which means that God's plan for the enemy nations must be more than just punishment. I'm going to show you a verse now, which I think is one of the most moving verses in the Old Testament. Have a look at this. After all we've just seen, have a look at this from Psalm 87. Look what God says. Um, Rahab is, uh, is, is another word for Egypt. Okay? I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia too and Tyre along with Cush and will say, this one was born in Zion. Do you see what God's saying? The enemy nations, the nations descended from Ham, they're going to be mine. I'm going to adopt them so that they are said, of this one it said, this one was born in Zion. This one is one of my people. And you know that because Nineveh, the great enemy city of Nineveh, what did God do? Many thousands of years later, he sent Jonah. He said, I want you to go to Nineveh because I want to save them. This is what our God is like. Our God is the God who loves his enemies, who saves his enemies, who goes to the ends of the earth to rescue his enemies, who would take his enemies and make them into friends, who would send his very own precious son to die on a cross for his enemies so that even as Jesus dies on a cross and they're spitting on him and they're mocking him and they're killing him, he will say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Here is the man who so loved his enemies that he would die for them so that his enemies could become his friends. That's who our God is. That is why we worship him. That's why we celebrate him because he's the God who loves his enemies. And all of us, by nature, are enemies of God. And he sent his son to die for you. What a magnificent God he is. And here's a challenge as we try and apply this. As we, I mean, for a start, just feel the weight of what it means that God says of you, this one was born in Zion. He says that over you. As you trust in Jesus, as you come to him. But can I just apply this? It means that no one is too far and no one is too bad to be saved by King Jesus. Jesus came to die for his enemies. I wonder how we treat enemies, though. I think it should cause us to stop and think about the way that our culture has treated uh, Shamima Begum, the girl who went off to join ISIS and now wants to come back. What do we do with that? How does this affect what we do with that? I don't know the rights and the wrongs of that, all that. I don't know all of the political ramifications. I don't know all the ethics. I don't know all of it. But I tell you this, as I read this, it moved me to think, have I even prayed for her? I haven't even prayed for her. And I haven't prayed for her little boy. 
And at very least, if we have a God who loves his enemies and who loves to reconcile his enemies, then it should break our hearts and it should cause us to get on our knees and to say, Father, would you save her? Would you bring her, not just, not home to the UK, home to her Father in heaven who made her? What a magnificent thing that would be. And as Christians, we could be so quick to join in the culture of condemnation and judgment and being so slow to forgive and holding grudges and being so negative. And actually, what if we were the people who say, we love it when enemies become friends? Linda's going to come and is going to tell us a story um, to help us think this through a little bit more, a, a story of a Christian who did this. And so we were talking about this uh, before John T. preached it, and uh, it just really struck me that a biography that I'm reading at the moment by a lady called Darlene uh, was so relevant to this. Uh, she and her husband uh, went out to the Dutch East Indies as missionaries just before World War II. They didn't know the world war was going to happen. And um, as the war broke out, they were sent to separate Japanese prisoner of war camps. And um, she was in a camp for women and children under the, the cruel and oppressive regime of a guy called Mr. Yumanji. He was a Japanese, um, she says of him. Um, when his temper was aroused, he was like a man who'd gone berserk. He could be deathly ruthless. And she tells uh, um, several stories of the way that he treated the women in their camp. Uh, it says... Um, in two angry strides he was in, within reach of the woman he struck her with his open hand on the left side of her face with such brute force that she was propelled through the air to land about 10 feet from where she'd been standing the plait of her long grey hair which was wrapped around her head and secured with long hairpins was lying loose in the dirt beside her my first thought was that a blow violent enough to throw her that distance and loosen her hairpins had certainly broken her neck I felt sick. Finally, she stood to her feet and they did and returned to her place in line, her face badly bruised and swelling. And she tells repeatedly of the way that this guy oppressed and treated the women in the camp. Um, and just the next page, she learns that her husband um, in the other Japanese prisoner of war camp for men has died. Uh, she's given this news and she said, Russell was dead. He'd been dead three months it was one of those moments when I felt that the Lord had forsaken me. My whole world fell apart. I grasped my ladder, rested my forehead against one of the rungs. Eyes closed, I tried to assimilate the awful cold hopelessness within me. Three months, Russell had already been dead. Three months, he had already been buried. The terrible finality of it overwhelmed me. I was too new to such grief to know how to handle it. And I just want to sketch out that context before I'm going to tell you what she did when she met uh, Mr. Jumanji, because I just think in those situations, if, you, if I was in that situation, I'd be feeling so sorry for myself, and I just don't think my eyes would be thinking about God, about, you know, where is he in all of that suffering, in all of that cruel, harsh oppression um, from that terrible, terrible guy. Um, but then he calls her into his office when he learns of the death of her husband, and he says to her, um, I want to talk to you. This is war. Yes, she says, Mr. Yumanji, I understand that. What you heard today, women in Japan have heard. Yes, sir, I understand that too. And then this was just so shocking to me. She, she takes such a risk here. And I don't think you can understand that because you haven't been involved in the story. But she, she just goes out on such a limb. She says, Mr. Yumanji, may I have permission to talk to you? 
He nodded, sat down, then motioned for me to take the other chair. Mr. Yumanji, I don't sorrow like people who have no hope. I want to tell you about someone of whom you may never have heard. I learned about him as a little girl in Sunday school back in America. His name is Jesus. He's the son of the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. God opened the most wonderful opportunity to lay the plan of salvation before the Japanese camp commander. Tears started to course down his cheeks. He died for you, Mr. Yumanji, and he puts love in our hearts, even for those who are our enemies. That's why I don't hate you, Mr. Yumanji. Maybe God brought me to this place and this time to tell you that he loves you. It was just breathtaking to read that and to think I would, how could I ever have the courage to do that? And yet she was so consumed with the love that God has for his enemies that even this man who was, he wasn't just her enemy and he wasn't just a cruel, oppressive dictator. He stood for the very authorities which had led her husband to his death. And yet even in the face of such overwhelming grief, her heart's desire was so after God's heart's desire that she would want to share this gospel with her greatest enemy. And it really challenged me to my core. And I thought, this is, this is what this passage is talking about. I've got to say, I, there's no other gospel like this, is there? Is there anything else that would make people act like this? Anything else that would make God's enemies into God's friends? And who knows, perhaps even that man will be standing in front of Jesus, worshipping Jesus. And it challenges us. And maybe for some of us, read some biographies. Get, get a sense of some of the stuff that God is doing around this world. There's the distant nations, there's the enemy nations, and finally, we need to do this quickly. Um, thirdly, there's the chosen nation. Um, and that's where we get to the descendants of Shem. So just flick over the page to um, verse 21. And in one sense, we've, we've moved outward and we moved inward to the center. And for the Israelites first reading this, they'd have said, this is our nation now. Now they're reading about themselves. So when it mentions Eber in verse 21, that's where we get the word Hebrew from. These are the Hebrews. This is the Hebrew nation. And so here is the question. How is God going to whistle to call back the distant nations? How is God going to turn his enemies into his friends? He's going to do it through his chosen nation. Through this people. Through the descendants of Shem. And these names are repeated over and over again in the Bible. Until in Luke chapter 3, you discover that these names are the names that feature in the very family tree of Jesus. It is from this family that Jesus will come. And it is through Jesus that the nations will be gathered and the enemies will be reconciled to become friends. Now, I realize at first sight, the idea of a chosen nation might sound a bit elitist. We might struggle with that. A chosen nation. But when you understand why they were chosen, suddenly it doesn't sound elitist at all. If I had a big tub of uh, Cadbury's heroes, right, a big tub of them, and I said, I'm going to choose one person, you'd all be... I, I was going to buy some, but then it was too tight. So um, you're just going to imagine it. We're going to play imaginary celebrations. Uh, heroes, wherever they are. Uh, imagine I had a big tub, and I said, I'm going to choose one person. And I look around and I choose one. And I announce who it is. Uh, and it's Tim. 
I say, Tim, you're the chosen one. I say, could you take these chocolates and share them around, please? <laughs> you see, something that changes the chosen thing, right? The chosen is not chosen. Now, if Tim had simply taken the chocolate and sat in a corner and stuffed his face, we'd say, no, Tim. <laughs> we'd say, Tim, no, that's not, that's not what you were chosen for. That's not what you were chosen for. You were chosen so that everybody could have chocolate. That's what we talk about when we say that God's people are a chosen people. They're not chosen so they can sit in a corner and stuff their face with God's blessings. They're chosen so that everybody can know. It's through this nation, through this nation that Jesus will come, through this nation that God will reconcile his enemies. It's through this nation that Jesus, the one who pays for sin, the one who dies on a cross, the one who reconciles all people, it's through this nation that they come. And therefore, to be chosen must never puff us up with pride. For Israel, they became proud. It's terrible to become proud. And we can become proud. Yes, I'm, look at me, I'm a Christian. One of God's special people. Oh, God forbid that we would ever become proud. He only chose you because he wants to rescue the nations. That's why he chose you. So that through you, more people could hear. And perhaps some of us, we need to stop stuffing our faces with the chocolate and we need to start giving that chocolate to others. And the month of March is a month when we get the opportunity to do that. Why not be praying? Heavenly Father, please would you help me to share some of this good news, this chocolate, this good news of Jesus with someone else. That's what we're here for. So here's the, here, it is, here it is all here, Genesis 10. I love Genesis 10. It's suddenly become like my favorite chapter in the Bible. <laughs> I was distant from God, but he sent Jesus to whistle and call me back. I was an enemy of God, but he sent Jesus to reconcile me to himself. And I've been chosen by God to be part of his plan so that the gospel may go to the ends of the earth. He's got the whole world in his hands. And one day, every tribe, every nation standing before Jesus, worshipping him. We've got to know this plan. We've got to get excited about this plan. We've got to give our lives for this. So why don't we pray together and we're going to sing and respond to... um, to this plan together. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that you have a plan. You've got the whole world in your hands. You've got the distant nations in your hands. You've got the enemy nations in your hands. You've got your chosen people in your hands. They're in your hands. And one day, there will be a vast multitude that no one can count. Father, please might we be among that crowd. Please might we be among those who add our little voices to that massive song, singing in worship of Jesus, the one who calls the nations to himself. Our Father, give us a passion for your plan. We pray we dedicate our lives to this plan, that we give our lives for this plan that more nations, more people might know you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.